1: 2017 like it was yesterday. I was a senior at an American high school, my IB diploma was kicking my ass, and people were still freaking out that Donald Trump was elected U.S. president. But what I remember most is the moment that a new online far-right American conspiratorial movement had taken over the internet. I'm talking about QAnon. Hey, it's Nur Azriyeh, and I'm one of the producers on Commons. While we work away on the next season, the team and I wanted to share a version of my interview with Peter Smith, a journalist from the Anti-Hate Network. This is from our season on cults. I interviewed Peter for our episode on Romana Didylo, the woman on a never-ending tour of the country claiming to be our rightful queen. And despite how interesting Romana is as a figure in the online conspiratorial movement, Peter Smith told me that she was part of something much bigger. Here it is, my conversation with Peter Smith. I hope you enjoy. Why? Like, why this topic in particular? What fascinates you about this?
2: I mean, during university, I was studying political science. And just kind of on a lark, I started joining uh, different cults. So like Scientology, the followers of Siri Chimroy, like these like very fringe religious organizations just trying to see what they were saying, what they were like, not as like a spiritual seeker, but as someone who was just curious about what do these people say about themselves? And then once I got out of school and kind of started in my career in media, I really started to find that I could spend time talking with these people. And there wasn't a lot of questions as to why somebody who looks like me and sounds like me would necessarily be in the crowd. I got sent to cover a tribunal that Faith Goldie was going through over her election finances. And it was there that I like accidentally sat in kind of the wrong section of the gallery. I didn't realize there was a media section. And then Faith ended up sitting right in front of me and her kind of followers just talking to me, kind of blissfully unaware that I was media. And then that kind of led me to start infiltrating different white nationalist groups here in Toronto, kind of more international ones online. And then that eventually kind of led into being hired by the Canadian Anti-Hate Network.
1: Can you tell me who QAnon is, what they believe, who is Q? Just give me like a, a brief rundown.
2: I mean, there, there's the story of like who QAnon actually is, which is still up for a lot of speculation. But the idea of who Q is, is one or several individuals who were very high up within the United States federal government. Q is a symbol of the clearance, the Q security clearance that they supposedly have. And they were posting these very cryptic, sometimes very long, sometimes very short messages to the the image board 4chan. He was claiming to have insights into this kind of hidden war that was going on between the deep state, you know, the the pedophilic cabal of the people who are, like, pulling back the freedoms from from the average citizens, and Trump and and the white hats. It started at a time on 4chan, like, if you're not familiar with the site... It can be easy to kind of be overwhelmed by it because it is just walls of texts and single images. You know, they get deleted once they move beyond a certain point. And if it wasn't for archive sites, then we'd have kind of no idea what the origins would be. But you had all these individuals, you had like CIA Anon, you know, FBI Anon, and they would post their telling of conspiracy theories. And so Q Anon was this figure. The first message talks about, I believe, Hillary Clinton being arrested, Canada has always kind of figured largely in the mythos. Justin Trudeau is seen as like an elite globalist figure, and I think it was like very early on, like within the first 10 Q drops, as they were called, Trudeau had been mentioned. So we've always had a kind of place within that, that mythology. Since then, Q, whoever they were, moved sites a few times, but then ultimately has kind of gone silent now. It was a participatory kind of belief system. You weren't just reading about kind of the the deep state and the pedophiles. You know, you were fighting the information war by sharing the memes and the videos and waking other people up. You know, rhetoric that we see kind of all over the place on all different sides of different conspiratorial movements. Rather than QAnon being an original belief system, it's kind of built this... Menagerie of older and newer conspiracy theories. And that was one of the reasons it was able to stay so powerful or so, uh, I guess, so like present for so long. You could find whatever you wanted inside of it if you were looking for it.
1: I know Q is silent, but are people still engaging with this stuff? Is there like an active board that people are posting to? Like, what's the activity been like after Q left?
2: I haven't looked in on the board in quite a while. Last time I did, it was very unstable sometimes you'd be able to access the site, sometimes you wouldn't. Q themselves doesn't post anymore. There were a couple kind of reemergences. like people would claim to be them, but, you know, suddenly it was signed B. Any attempt, it seemed like, after there was a long period of silence to kind of reinvigorate, seemed to kind of fall flat. QAnon definitely still exists, very much alive, but the issue was after the American federal election, the last one, its focus really shifted from fighting the international fight against, you know, the cabal into turning back the results of the election.
1: One thing that's particularly interesting to me, and I don't know why, is that they use these, like, chat rooms and boards and, and websites and apps that generally, like, I have never heard of anybody in my life using. Like, why are these the, the
2: platforms? Especially when we look at the origins of QAnon, what's really interesting there is that it was developed on 4chan. That's where it, it got its, I don't know, its sea legs so to speak. But then once it made the jump from what is a very fringe space, like 4chan, like 8chan, into Facebook and kind of like your dad's social media, that's where it really came alive and just started to take off. A few years ago, getting social media companies to take action against not just QAnon, but a variety of different kind of conspiratorial movements, but especially QAnon, um, was particularly difficult. But that is where I think most people got sucked into it. That's where most of the sharing gets done. Telegram, I think, especially over the course of the pandemic, has become a little bit more popular, especially for people who feel heavily moderated or are looking to skirt around. The, the moderation that you see on, on mainstream social media platforms, they like fester on these kind of fringes. And then when they're ready to kind of enter the mainstream dialogue, that's where they explode across what we think of as mainstream social media.
1: When was the first time you heard of Romana, the Queen of Canada?
2: I broke the story on Romana DiDulo. Well, fortunately or unfortunately, it is something that I speak about probably the most. She came to my attention, I think it was around February 2001. That was when she started to really start to pick up steam. She had been around before becoming very prominent in, in QAnon spaces. But I hadn't heard of her until she had already amassed something was like 40 or 50,000 followers on a social media chat app called Telegram. Nobody had any idea who she was, but there had been no media reporting at this time. And the thing that had led to her boost was that these kind of tangential figures that were around QAnon, these influencers, especially when whoever Q was stopped posting and went quiet, these people started to really kind of fill the void that was left as far as like interpretation and. You know, the kind of prophetic readings of, of these posts online. And then her video, where she had declared herself queen. Once she started calling herself the queen, she started identifying with QAnon. She was confirmed, as, as people in her kind of spaces were calling it, by a British figure who, as far as I can tell, only just reshared her video. And that was proof positive that everything that she was saying was, was on the up and up. And at the height, I think she had close to 100,000 followers, gaining them hand over fist already making kind of very bizarre proclamations about herself, her power, and really closely aligning herself with the whole Trump, MAGA, and then QAnon kind of conspiratorial space.
1: Who does she claim she is? And I know you mentioned a video where she like proclaimed herself as queen.
2: Yeah. So who she claims to be is this kind of constantly evolving backstory. But initially, when I started paying attention, she had been declared by the White Hats, who in the kind of QAnon pantheon are the unseen elements of the, of the good governance that were you know helping Donald Trump drain the swamp, take back the country or take back the world from the pedophilic cabal of cannibalist child molesters. She had placed herself as a figure who, like him, had been appointed as queen of the Republic of Canada. That title got changed, I think, once she realized that a republic means that you don't have any type of royalty. But since then has kind of added many other steps to this. She's a fifth dimensional being. She's part of a a galactic empire. It's this kind of rolling biography. At one point, she was declaring herself queen of the world or like ruler of, of the planet. It seems like that is maybe nothing gets walked back, but things just kind of get left by the wayside. But the current myth is that, yeah, she is a interdimensional being bestowing some type of divinity on the world.
1: I'm getting the sense that, yes, Romana is kind of, like, embedded in this sphere, has, like, some sort of connections to QAnon. Would it be fair to say that her affiliation, whether as deep and profound as she claims it is, kind of, like, legitimized her in that space? Do I do I have yeah. that right?
2: Oh, absolutely. Again, it was this endorsement from these established QAnon figures that really enabled her to take off. Initially, she was floundering with, you know, around a thousand followers, but it wasn't until not only she started identifying with QAnon, but then, yeah, these like these niche internet micro-celebrities picked her up and spread her that, that we started seeing the massive climb. It's it's bizarre to think that a few years ago she was literally living um, in a boarding house, just kind of recording things from the the attic that she lived in, to now on this what seems like an endless tour of of the country.
1: When I think of QAnon, especially like its manifestations in Canada, one. Particular moment that stands out to me is when that guy drove across Canada with like a bunch of firearms and oh, rammed that's it right. into Parliament Hill and the would, friendly like,
2: sausage maker. Yeah, yeah, and he was
1: like, "I have a message for Justin Trudeau," and he was like, on a mission to like arrest him. That to me is like an instance where like we've seen these kind of online conspiratorial movements kind of manifest in the physical world. What can you tell me about that moment? What did that indicate to you?
2: QAnon in Canada kind of came up with the, the yellow vest movement, the Canadian yellow vest movement, uh, which was very different than what we saw in Europe. It was adopting the aesthetic of like bereaved gas workers and, you know, their convoy in what was it, 2018 started out with, you know, very similarly to, I think, the, the more recent one was that there was legitimate grievance and legitimate claim, but then was organized and included just massive elements of of the far right. And when you would enter these kind of yellow vest social media spaces, you would see nothing but like endless conspiracies. And this was in a time of even less moderation than, than we kind of see now. And then QAnon came into Canada kind of adjacent to that. It has always been able to inspire people to take physical action. And I think that was also, one of the things that we saw about Romana that was really interesting to start out, not only was she amassing this large following, but she was immediately getting people to go out into the streets to deliver these cease and desist letters. And where they were different than a lot of these kind of sovereign citizen, pseudo-legal kind of rejection of the current like legal framework that governs our society, because they, they were massive during the pandemic, these cease and desist orders. And QAnon itself has always been able, just by the, the sheer size of it, We've often seen people taking real-life action based on it. And then, yeah, we had our friendly sausage maker, uh, I think it was Corey Huron, drive from one side of the country, put his truck through the gates of the prime minister's residence. And, yeah, I mean, his truck was, like, packed with rations, I guess, in case he got hungry, but also, yeah, weapons, firearms, and then, ostensibly, he says anyway, in his defense, that his goal was just to deliver this letter to the prime minister, which, unfortunately, I don't think ever, ever made it. But yeah, DiDulo continued that kind of tradition of people going out into the world. And then very early on was just able to get these people out of their houses.
1: You mentioned the cease and desist. Like, what did these documents look like? What was the language that was on there? What did it demand of people? You know, where did she send these things to?
2: They're very basic, like literally just a piece of paper that could be printed from home. As far as I know, early on, she wasn't distributed anything at all. She very quickly amassed like a small team of people who was helping run all of these different chat rooms for her because that was the other thing that they did very quickly was break everybody up into sections, into smaller groups. It was regional usually. So there was like the Ontario group, there was the BC group. And then it did start to like break down even further than that into like more local areas. But the main purpose of these groups, they said anyway, was for them to be set up and then serve as a record of who was getting these letters. When you take a look at them, they're very in line with kind of other sovereign citizen pseudo legal deploying a lot of things that sound very official, you know, ordering people to cease whatever they're doing immediately, you know, by order of, you know, the regent, Queen Romana. The basic message was you need to stop anything to do with COVID-19 health restrictions, anything to do with like, quote unquote, forced vaccinations or face imprisonment and the possibility of execution and then when these things would be delivered, you know, there would be an accompanying video, sometimes there would be a picture of just floors just filled with letters kind of piled on top of each other. There would be addresses shared around within these groups of like where to send them, also the names of people that they felt were particular targets for for these. And then there was also just a general mystification about why this wasn't working, which is a bit different cuz groups like Action for Canada, for instance, they have a very similar letter. It doesn't carry with it a, a threat of death, but it's supposed to serve as a, a legal notice so that in the future, when they take their civil action or their legal action against the state, against the doctors, you know, whoever else, you know, they'll be able to point back and say, like, well, you were notified. Whereas Romana is a bit similar in the sense that you'll be able to look back and say, like, well, you were notified that you would probably be killed for this, and you continued. As far as I'm aware, that nobody ceased or desist based on, based on these letters, yeah.
1: Then duck hunting season came.
2: Oh, wow. Yeah, we're going through the, the eras oh, yeah. of Tadulo here. Yes.
1: What the hell was that?
2: Yeah, so duck hunting season was when she kind of ramped up the idea of the militant response. So when she first came out, there were kind of these chat groups that were for Canada's military 2.0. And you could join them. You couldn't comment or anything. You could only go in for a second. And then your name would be on the list, I assume, of of reserves or people to be recruited. The Duck Hunters was a message she put out saying that essentially she was hoping for armed individuals, particularly it was targeted towards people in the U.S., but also Canadians, to yeah form these groups of of hunters, which was interesting because it was all like By calling it Duck Hunter, you get the sense that there was this idea that she was trying to obscure what they were doing. But then it would also be like, so then the Duck Hunters will come up, seize the borders, the government, the media. It was supposed to be kind of her special forces that was going to be deployed on the country to kind of seize the positions of power and set up her government. Some of the coded language that she uses is really reminiscent from, again, QAnon, from kind of internet conspiratorial spaces. Other ones are just. It seems like her using language, sometimes it makes almost no sense. Like it's just a string of nouns kind of looped together that I assume are supposed to appear like you know, you're given the the go-ahead for some sort of action. Other ones like the frog and things like that are much more linked to like established things like Pepe the Frog and Internet memes that have been around for quite a while.
1: Her calls to violence, you know, whether it be the duck hunting season or shooting, you know, illegal immigrants crossing the border. The violence and, you know, calling for people to, like, do something about it. How is she justifying these calls to, like, get people up in arms?
2: what legitimizes a state. And it's like a monopoly over the legitimate force of violence. And so to her followers, where she is a regent, where she is a a ruler or president or whatever else, she holds those reins. You know, many people who believe in her believe a variety of other conspiracies. Many of those focus on marginalized people, immigrants, you know, Roxham Road, I think she's referenced directly before. She capitalizes on the feelings of mistrust on top of the belief in, in her sovereignty. And then, yeah, that, that would really resonate with people, especially people who are looking to take action. And that's always kind of been the biggest thing about QAnon is that you are not just listening. You're not just receiving the information. It's like you have to take it and you have to do something with it. It's this idea of like we are the storm, like the storm is coming, but you, the participants, are the storm. You know, after years of a pandemic, after Donald Trump allegedly losing the United States presidency, you know, I think a lot of people got the feeling within the kind of broader movement that just posting memes and documentaries wasn't going to wake up enough people fast enough. Within her very, like, niche subset in what is already a weird subset, she found a way to kind of move people.
1: What's her relationship like with, like, mainstream media and talking to the press?
2: As far as I know, she's never done it. Any attempts to, to reach her that I've made have been unsuccessful. She does not have an interest in her narrative being disseminated to her followers by anybody else other than the channels that she controls. And I think part of that is why she won't grant an interview, because us reporting on her critically in a sanctioned interview might lend more legitimacy than she is willing to give someone that she can't essentially like have the final edits on.
1: How does she play into this us-versus-them kind of concept? Like, they have uniforms and this, like, specific language.
2: I mean, anything that contradicts her narrative or even questions it is considered heresy to some degree. Individuals who are kind of within the actual core themselves, any type of questioning apparently results in kind of being screamed at, you know, incredibly harsh reactions, punishments of type that are, like, menial tasks difficulty sleeping. There was the collective punishment of having to listen to Boney M on kind of repeat. There's like a rigid enforced mindset. And then if just from reports, if you fall outside of that, the social backlash is like quite significant within the group. And then if you're inside the chat or anything like that, if you're just an online follower, it's very easy to remove people and ostracize them from the group. Like Anytime I've attempted to contact her you know, if that account happened to be in a chat, then I would find it gone, you know, within a few hours. That's a thing you see in kind of cultic movements quite a lot, like having an in-group and an out-group language.
1: Has she fulfilled any of her promises and have any of her followers noticed?
2: You know, that's an interesting one. I don't believe that she has fulfilled at kind of any of the things that she has promised. I mean, her promises are pretty outlandish. You know, she informed all of her followers once that they no longer had to pay their bills, that their mortgages. You know, there are times when she was in Nova Scotia, for instance, she was denying the fact that the hurricane had even taken place while touring communities that had been severely damaged by the hurricane. I've heard instances of her raising money for one victim and something like $10,000, and then that individual not actually seeing a dime of that. She constantly is asking her followers for money. And as far as we know, that is 100% how this kind of continuing tour is is funded.
1: You mentioned a little bit just some of the consequences of people following her, you know, like people not paying their mortgage and all that stuff. What has happened to these people?
2: Some ex-members, including two who were from B.C., left with the original caravan or the original convoy, but ended up getting just dropped in the middle of nowhere in Newfoundland with several others and just had to make their way back. Again, just from the inside of chats, I've never been able to verify this or get any of them to speak with me, but individuals have said, like, you know, we have creditors who are coming after us. Some of these people who have left, you know, organize against her, you know, try to figure out where they're going call ahead, kind of get their events canceled or at least make things a little more difficult for them. Ramana is a topic that I have to talk about a lot uh, and I'm happy to do it, but the way that it has impacted some people, the way it seems to be impacting them anyway, is quite severe. As much as there's an instinct to kind of be dismissive of them because they've bought into some like very fanciful things that include these like, you know, very threatening, very threatening languages in some case. Yeah, at the same time, it is like, desperately hurting some people as much as these kind of incidents hopefully bring people out of the system and help them see kind of reality to some degrees. The amount of damage she does and then just gets to drive away at the end of it all is quite upsetting. Would you consider her a cult? I would, especially with the kind of roving mobile government, the fluctuating membership, and then the treatment of the people that we hear like it's, I think it is also important to point out that the most violent we've ever seen them get was when a group of them tried to arrest police officers at a police station in Peterborough, Ontario, um, that we hear from people who've left that situation on top of the like constant claims of her divinity on top of government authority. Yeah, I think we've transitioned well into, into a cult. It is very helpful to look at a lot of far-right beliefs through what's called the cultic milieu, but that doesn't necessarily equal them being cults themselves. But yeah, I think she's definitely kind of jumped well over the line on that one. She's pole vaulted over the line into that one.
1: That's your episode of Commons. We have a new season coming up soon, so keep an eye on your feeds in March. If you like this episode, leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at CommonsPod. You can also email me, noor at canadaland.com. This episode was produced by me, Jordan Cornish, and Archie Mann. Our managing editor is Annette Ijofo. Our editor-in-chief is Karen Puglazi, And our music is by Nathan Burley. You can listen to Commons ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Okay, period. Cut.
0: This episode is brought to you in part by The Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best, things you can do for yourself is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca CanadaLand to claim this offer.